Luke 8, 1-15, which is found on, found on page 731 in the Red Pew Bibles. I think a very well-known passage to many people. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told them this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on, and the birds of the air ate it up. Some fell on rock, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop, a hundred times more than was sown. When he said this, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. His disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that, though seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rock are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart, who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. Uh, before we have a look at this morning's passage, let's just pray. Dear Father, we ask as we now come to um, look at your word and, and consider its contents and its meaning for us in our lives, I pray that your spirit would be working in our hearts to con convict us of what it is you want us to understand from this passage and that you would quieten our hearts and still our minds and take away all distractions so that we can be focused on you for the next while. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you find communicating with other people difficult sometimes? Anybody say no? <laughs> I think we've probably all been in a situation where a message has become somewhat scrambled one way or another. Either we intended to communicate to somebody some sort of message and it didn't get there, wasn't received correctly, or the message we received was not what the sender intended us to get. And on top of this, Sometimes we find the person receiving the message can suffer from, or even be guilty of, selective hearing. 
Now I'm going to defend myself twice on this count. So my first point of defence is that I would argue that selective hearing can be a useful skill at times. Look, if you're in a crowded room having a conversation with somebody, you've got to be able to filter out all the other conversations and along with all that background noise in order so you can give full attention to them and what they're saying to you. However, I will concede it can also be a slightly devious action at times because we only listen to what we want to hear. Isn't that true? Now, selective hearing, unfortunately, is typically associated with men. <clears throat> and so this bloke's got a hearing aid for selective hearing with three modes, television, wife, and off. But I'm pretty confident most husbands would say that this is a fictional disease invented by their wives. No doubt there are some wives here today who have diagnosed this condition in their husbands. In my case, it would only be honest to say that I've been caught out by my wife, Karen. But in my defence, this is my second point, I'm sure there are times I've done it but I haven't been aware that I've done it. I'm calling on ignorance. But perhaps you can recall a time when your husband's come home with some breaking news he wants to share with you and the only thing that he is simply telling you is something you told him last week. The real truth is that we all have a tendency to have selective hearing at times. We like to hear the things and the people that support our own opinions. But often we're tempted to reject or ignore anything that might cause us to change our thinking or our current way of life. I think that's reality. But selective hearing is dangerous when it comes to God's word. Refusing to listen to or ignoring God's word when he's trying to tell us something can lead us to miss warnings or his message to us. And this will happen if we only listen to the things we want to hear. And sometimes God challenges us. He challenges our way of thinking and he challenges our way of living. And the Bible is full of that. That's what it's all about. It tells us what to believe and how to live as Christians. When there are things about our lives that God wants us to change, he's going to let us know about them one way or another. He's that kind of person. If we choose to only listen selectively, then we might miss his voice. So today we're looking at the first 15 verses of Luke chapter 8, and as Tim said, it's probably a very familiar um, story to you. So if you haven't done so already, retrieve your Bibles and open them up at Luke chapter 8. Now I think you'll find in the Pew Bibles, if not your own personal Bibles, that there's a heading on top of this section and it's commonly referred to as the parable of the sower. But it really isn't. It's not that. It's the parable of the soils. It's a bit misleading. Now the story itself is um, very simplistic. It's quite uncomplicated in terms of what happens. But understanding the point of the story is another matter and that's what we'll be focusing on. So it's a story about a farmer who sowed his seed in his paddock and his paddock's got four different kinds of ground in it. So this is a story about hearing and the condition of the human heart. That's what it's all about. It's about how people hear and respond to the word of God. 
Now the question for us today is what kind of listeners are we? How receptive are we when God speaks to us through his word? What condition is our heart in? Are we spiritually healthy enough to be producing fruit for his kingdom? We could also twist the parable, not twist the parable, but look at the parable from a slightly different perspective and think of it in terms of this question. What responses should we expect when people hear the gospel? If we, if, if we are the one communicating the gospel to someone else, and which is what Jesus is doing in verse 1 when he tells this story, he's actually parked in the lake of um, Sea of Galilee in a boat just slightly offshore with great throngs of crowd listening to him proclaim the gospel and telling this story. We're doing this, I'm doing the same. You do the same when you speak to people about your faith. So if we're one communicating the gospel to someone else, it's going to be really helpful to us, is it not, to know what to expect in terms of their response? And why is it helpful? So that we don't become discouraged when we don't get the response we think we deserve. Or so that somehow we don't blame the gospel if we don't get the outcome we're looking for. As if somehow the gospel was inadequate to penetrate the the heart of that person or maybe it's so that we don't blame ourselves as if somehow if we were more skilled we might have a greater impact what this parable is telling us that it's not about the skill of the sower the person proclaiming the gospel it's not about the seed the word of God in that there's some good bits and some bad bits it's all good it's about the heart it's about the soil. It's about the ground. <clears throat> now when Jesus explains the parable, he tells us in verse 11 that the seed is the word of God. Full stop. Simple as that. There's nothing to discuss, argue or debate about that. And in verses 12 to 15... He goes on to describe that there's four kinds of ground or soil that represents the hearer or the, the condition of those hearers' hearts. But straight away, without looking any further, we face an issue. Normally we tend to think that Jesus must have told stories in order to clarify his point. And many, as, many of us I know know preachers, or other folk who have this gift, this ability to tell a story or craft an, an analogy that really suddenly brings to light some obscure point. But that is not what Jesus is doing with this parable. <clears throat> in fact, he explains to his disciples in verse 10, he's speaking in parables in order to throw a veil over what he's saying. He's saying everyone will hear the words but not everyone will understand. Some people will hear without hearing. The kingdom lessons that Jesus wants to teach are intended for only those that are his true followers, those that are his true disciples. Hence the challenge that Jesus throws out at the end of the story in verse 8. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
So while our focus naturally falls on the four kinds of listeners described in the story, we must not, we cannot miss what the parable teaches about how God works in our lives. Obviously he works in many ways, through circumstances, through the influences of other people that we come in contact with, but this parable makes it clear that he works to bring change and fruitfulness in our lives through his word. Now sometimes, elsewhere in the Bible, it talks about God's words in various other descriptive terms. It describes it as being a hammer that smashes rocks to pieces. Sometimes God's word is a fire that burns up wood. Sometimes it's described as a sword that's so sharp that it can discern our deepest <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> discern our deepest motivations and intentions. But here it's described as a seed. Now a seed contains life. Someone has said that anyone can count the number of seeds in an apple, but only God can count the number of apples in a seed. A seed carries the potential for growth. Sometimes the growth goes unnoted for long periods of time, but eventually it becomes clear for everyone to see. And of course that's precisely what happens with an apple tree. But a seed by itself is also extremely vulnerable. And as we'll see, someone can trample on a seed, a seed can fall on the wrong kind of ground and become ineffective, and a bird can swoop down, the seed's gone. And this parable demonstrates both the surprising vulnerability of God's word and yet its transforming, growth-producing power. The vulnerability of the seed is evident in the first of the four types of ground that Jesus talks about. Now some of the seeds that the sower scatters end up on the path. This is the path between the paddocks. It never makes it as far as the good soil, the rich soil, where it's likely, if it made it there, to sprout. So as it lies there on the path, there are two hazards. People are walking on the path between paddocks and they trample on the seed, they walk over the seed and any seed that's there that doesn't get walked on and trampled on will get gobbled up by the birds. <clears throat> so when we translate that into the point of Jesus' teaching, we see that God's word does not make an impact on everyone who hears it. In terms of the profile of the hearers, it's possible to hear without hearing. So Jesus is saying to us, he's teaching, that there are some people who just don't get it. There are people who just outright reject God. They're people who hear without hearing. And during his own ministry, there were people who heard without hearing. And these people had very hard hearts. <clears throat> there were many hard-hearted people such as the Pharisees. We talked about one of them last week. Who listened. They didn't listen to be transformed by what they heard. They listened so they could find angles to be critical and to find reasons to justify their resistance to Jesus. That's how hard their hearts were. Jesus says it's not simply an issue of the message washing over these people and they just don't get it. He also says there's an enemy agent who does everything in his power to prevent the impact of the word. In his interpretation of his own story, what the birds are to the hard ground, the devil is to the people who hear without hearing. 
Jesus puts it in verse 12 like this. He says, the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart. So even if you're a follower of Jesus, I'm guessing you've probably experienced the same kind of thing going on in your own heart from time to time. Most of us probably know what it is to read a passage of scripture, perhaps as part of your daily devotions, only to discover within an hour or less almost completely unable to recall anything that you read. And I wonder how many faithful church-going Christians have forgotten everything from the sermon on Sunday morning by the time they get to their lunch table. We too can become people who hear without hearing. The second type of ground that Jesus talks about is the rocky ground, but it's not actually rocks on top of the ground. What he's talking about is bedrock that's hidden under the soil. And in Israel, the situation is, in places, there are sheets of um, limestone sitting underneath the soil. Typically, it's deeper than the depth that a plough goes, so the farmer doesn't know it's there um, until he puts seed in the soil above it. And what happens when that seed goes into that soil that's sitting on top of this rock is that the seed initially fares better than it did on the hard ground of the path. After all, there's no one walking on it and the birds don't snatch it away because it's get covered up by the soil. And the good news is that growth actually starts to take place. But the problem with this ground is that it doesn't allow what the things that's growing to access sufficient moisture. See, if the soil's only that deep, can only hold that much moisture. If the soil's 10 foot deep, it can hold a lot more moisture. So this soil where there's bedrock underneath, effectively pretty shallowly under the surface of the soil, means there's a limited amount of moisture those plants can get access to. So the problem is the plants don't have access to sufficient moisture. And so as the growth starts to appear, there's nowhere for the roots to grow. Anybody who knows anything about plants understands that when a plant is growing, it's looking for moisture. And if it can't get it near the surface, it will drive its roots down and down and down until it can access some moisture. But if it hits rock, it can't go any further. So what happens is there's no moisture, the roots can't go any further, the plant lacks moisture, it will burn out, wither, dry, die. And Jesus explains what kind of people he has in mind when he's talking about the seed that goes on this rock-based ground. <clears throat> and it's in verse 13. He says, those on the rock, so those seeds on the rock, are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it. But they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing they fall away. So there's three things there that we can notice um, in terms of what Jesus describes about how these people are going to respond to the sea, the word that they receive. First of all, he says, their response is joyful. So initially there's excitement and great enthusiasm in terms of a response to what they hear. Now in the context of Jesus' ministry, in his time, 
that message was good news. The good news was that the kingdom of God was coming. Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of God is here. What that meant to the people of the time, the Jewish people of time, was that God was on the throne. That meant the prospect of peace, joy and hope for the Jewish people. And people began to realise that those promises from the Old Testament, that some of them were no doubt beginning to doubt and would never be fulfilled, had not been forgotten after all. The gospel means good news. The word gospel equals good news. It's good news to know that God is on the throne and that a time's coming when peace and justice will reign. We too look forward to that same time when Christ returns again. It's good news. In fact, it's even surprising news to discover that God's anointed king has not come to bring this kingdom by means of some military con conquest, which some of the Jewish people thought was going to happen. It's surprising because their king, our king, came living as a servant and giving his life as a sacrifice for their sins and our sins. Imagine that. I don't think it's ever happened in history before. I'm sure it hasn't. Where a king would die for his subjects. So it's good news to know that Jesus has overcome death, of course, and that there's eternal life beyond our mortal lives for those that love, trust and follow him. And of course, good news should be received with joy, will be received with joy. But the problem with the way these people respond to the word is in the second aspect of their response. Their response is superficial at best because they have no roots. They respond enthusiastically and superficially to the initial excitement and promises that the good news brings, but the message never gets to go deep, deep into their being. The roots don't get down into their heart. It never goes deep enough to bring about lasting change. And this means that their response is, thirdly, just temporary. It didn't last. Once the going gets tough and their commitment is put to the test and they undergo trials and tribulations, what do they do? They abandon ship, give up. There's no depth and there are no roots. Once the initial enthusiasm gets dried up by the heat of the trial, They've got nothing. Nothing's left. Now you're probably aware that during the time when the Soviet Union existed, the church was mercilessly prosecuted and persecuted under communism. Now on one Sunday there, at a house church, a Christian house church, believers started arriving during the day. And they didn't all arrive at church at the same time we do, sort of en masse. They dribbled in over the course of the day in ones, twos, very small groups so they wouldn't arouse suspicion from the KGB informers. And when they were all finally there and they um, were ready to start, they'd start by singing hymns quietly. And so this group was doing that and then suddenly in walked two soldiers with loaded AK-47s at the ready and one of them shouted to the group, if you wish to announce, renounce your commitment to Jesus Christ, leave now. Two or three 
left real quick. Then another flew out the door, and after another minute or two, a couple more went. And then the soldier said, this is your last chance. Either turn against your faith in Christ or stay and suffer the consequences. Two more scarped off. Everybody else that was left didn't move. They were frozen. There were parents there with children who were trembling beside them. The parents were trying to look down reassuringly at their kids, but they were standing there fully expected to either be gunned down or at best imprisoned, which probably meant Siberia. The other soldier closed the door, looked back at those who were standing against the wall and said, keep your hands up, but this time keep them up in praise to our Lord Jesus Christ, for we too are Christians. We were sent to another house church several weeks ago to arrest a group of believers and the other soldier jumps in and says, but instead we were converted. We have learned by experience, however, that unless people are willing to die for their faith, they cannot be fully trusted. So we'll probably agree, all of us, that that was a pretty extreme test or trial for those Christians. But it illustrates the point nicely. It was their ability to withstand the severity of that test that demonstrated the reality of their faith. What they had once heard had taken deep root in their lives. So the question for us today is, and to consider every day, is what does our faith look like in times of testing? When the going gets tough, how does your faith stand up to it? Do you abandon ship? Or do you man up, so to speak? What does your commitment to Jesus look like when the initial enthusiasm is diminished? If our hearts are shallow and our response lacks roots, then we may turn out to be people who hear but just don't last. Now the third type of ground that Jesus is talking about is the type that is infested with thorns and weeds. And initially, there seems to be clear growth. Up comes the plant. The seed's not trampled and the birds don't snatch it away. It doesn't wither in the heat because the soil's deep enough and there's plenty of moisture. But it's, the farmer still doesn't get the outcome that he wants. The seed grows, but the plants are choked by the thorns and the weeds that were in the soil before the seed got there and grow up with it. And Jesus says in verse 14 that this third type of ground represents listeners who hear, but they don't produce any fruit. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those that hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life and their fruit does not mature. With these people, something clearly happens when they hear the word. There is a response and there's signs of growth, but their lives are full of other things that clamour for their attention. Sadly, it's those other things that choke out their spiritual life. Spiritual fruitfulness never happens because there are too many distractions. And Jesus gives three specific examples in this passage of what these distractions could be. Cares, riches and pleasures. So the cares of life, firstly. These are the worries that often fill our minds. And there's plenty of things in this world today that are a legitimate cause for concern. Let's have a look at some of them. Many of the world's economies are in the middle of severe difficulties. 
prices of everything just seem to go up and up and up. The spectre of unemployment is always looming, a shadow over our shoulders. And for those who are working, there's the nagging question about whether I've got enough in my superannuation to live after I retire. We worry about health, of course. What if cancer strikes? I've got young children. What if a stroke leaves us unable to fend for ourselves? Uh, we worry about how do, how do we care for ageing parents or relatives. We worry about our children. We ask, well, what sort of world are they going to be living in when they become adults? And then just in the background, just to fill out the picture, there's the lurking threat of international terrorism, organised crime. The fact is our world is changing. Old ways of thinking and doing are being jettisoned. There's plenty of ways to argue yourself into a state of complete anxious insecurity. The point is not that, concerns, that the concerns around these areas are illegitimate. They are. They're legitimate concerns. The point is that as the volume of our anxieties increase, our spiritual vitality is put at risk. Jesus also says that riches can choke the seed, can choke our spiritual vitality. Now, I don't want us to read this to be seen as Jesus, or me for that matter, condemning riches in and of themselves. The fact is that God blesses some people with wealth and material resources. And at the beginning of Luke 8, in verses 2 and 3, he mentions the women, or Luke mentions the women, who supported Jesus out of their own means while he was ministering in public. Now, presumably these were relatively wealthy women. Jesus talked about elsewhere how hard it was for a rich person to enter the kingdom. It's not impossible, but it is hard. Although being wealthy is not intrinsically wrong, Jesus wants us to recognise that issues around wealth and possessions have the ability to squeeze the life out of us spiritually. They can so dominate us that our lives just become unfruitful. This parable, one of the reasons it would be so familiar is that if you read the Gospel of Mark or Matthew or Luke, you'll come across this very same parable. So in Mark's account of this parable, he adds a couple of extra details that aren't here in Luke. And one of those details is that Jesus mentions the deceitfulness, the deceitfulness of riches. Now riches can play tricks with us. They tell us that we can depend on them. They tell us that we will be more fulfilled if we have more of them. They promise us more than they can deliver. So could it be that the reason your spiritual life is not thrive, thriving the way it did in the early years of your faith is that the acquisition of wealth is choking it? Have you become wealthy but getting there has cost you your ability to produce fruit of spiritual significance? And then last, thirdly, but certainly not least, are the pleasures of life. And Mark, in Mark's account, he adds a detail about this. He refers to them as the desires for other things. And here's the problem. What makes pleasures difficult to handle is that they're pleasurable. That's why they distract us. But it's God who gives us everything richly to enjoy, isn't it? 
Now Adam and Eve started life in an amazingly pleasant garden, so we're told in Genesis. It was wonderful until the day that they decided to enjoy the pleasures and fruits of the garden on their own terms, without any reference to God. Then it all went pear-shaped. It is possible for us to allow even God-given pleasures to become a distraction to us, unfortunately. A good thing can become a bad thing when we allow it to have too much of a place in our lives. A small example. It's one thing to enjoy a superb dinner as a gift from God's hand. He's a wonderful provider. It's something else to descend to gluttony where food becomes an obsession. So Jesus here is talking about a worldly heart. It's, it's the hard heart that hears without hearing. It's the shallow heart, the superficial heart that hears without lasting. The worldly heart hears without producing. Now I've got a small transmitter in my car, portable transmitter, that allows me to play sermons or music from an MP3 player through a frequency on my radio and that's because my car radio doesn't have an MP3 sort of jack on it. However, the downside of this little transmitter is it only works when I tune it into a clear unused frequency on the radio, i.e. it just cannot compete with a strong signal that's already using that frequency, such as from a radio station. And that picture is another way to think of the point of Jesus is making here. Various kinds of signals compete for bandwidth. And if we don't learn to tune them out, the danger is God's voice is drowned out. Now I'm not saying that God's voice has the potential... I'm saying that we have to accept that God's voice has the potential to be louder than any background noise. Of course, he's God. But sometimes he speaks to us in a gentle whisper, doesn't he? Now Jesus is comparing the word of God to seed. For all the power and potential of a seed, it remains surprisingly vulnerable. Birds can snatch it and thorns can choke it. In our day and age, distraction is one of the deepest problems we face. All sorts of things are competing for our attention. We've become time poor. And this is a serious problem, a serious problem for all our relationships but never more so than in our relationship with God. Simply put, have we lost the ability to attend to God in the inner sanctuary of our soul, to take that time out to be with God, to be listening, to be quiet, to be still with him? All of us, you and me, constantly need to be taking an honest look and assessing what's competing for our attention what are the things that are distracting us and preventing us from being spiritually effective and fruitful? If no real spiritual growth is happening in your life, why is that? What's going on that means that we listen without producing? Only one of the four type of grounds that Jesus talks about produces what we could really call a successful outcome. And Jesus describes that in verse 8. He says, Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop, a hundred times more than was sown. 
Now I want to say that now that we're up to number four of the ground types or the soil types, we can't assume there's an equal distribution of seeds. Um, so 75% of the seeds have perished and only 25% have succeeded in terms of a number game. That would be reading far too much into the story. What we do know from the story, from Jesus, is that among the various ways people listen to the word, only one is ultimately going to be fruitful. And the successful outcome is when the word is received in what Jesus describes as an honest and good heart. There are people who hear, these are people who hear without quitting. They allow the word to get into the depth of, they be, of their being and they persevere in listening and obeying until their lives produce fruit. And it's the fruitfulness that God is seeking from us. He's not just looking for people who make a spur-of-the-moment decision because they want their sins forgiven or because they want to know that they will be guaranteed to make it into heaven. God wants to change our lives. God wants to use us for the work in his kingdom. And spiritual fruit is the evidence that God is at work in and through our lives. Fruitfulness is an important theme through the Bible. Take Psalm 1 as an example. It contains in it a very warm invitation to stand out from the crowd and allow regular meditation on God's word and allow it to shape our lives. It compares the person who delights in that word and it says that's a wise person. It allows that person who delights, it compares that person who delights in that word to a tree that is planted by a stream of water and it bears its fruit in a proper season. It's a beautiful description. Later on in the Old Testament, the whole nation of Judah is described as being like a vineyard. The vineyard owner worked hard to prepare the ground and put everything in place for the day when he would be able to enjoy the wine from his vineyard. Despite all that, the vineyard had in its favour good soil, good location, etc., when the owner came to harvest the grapes, all he found were wild grapes. So there was fruit, but it was the wrong kind of fruit. Instead of justice and righteousness, the nation was producing violence and bloodshed. And it's because of the Old Testament background such as that of the failed vine that Jesus teaches in John 15 that in place of the failed vine with its bitter grapes, he is the true vine. Jesus is the true vine. And more than that, as his disciples, his true followers, remain in close relationship with him, his life will th flow through them and they will bear fruit. So when God brings his word of the gospel to us, it is so that we will be fruitful. Not just that our sins will be forgiven and we will have assurance of life in the age to come, albeit they're important things. But as the word takes root, in a good and honest heart, there will be signs that God is at work in our lives. Our own lives will begin increasingly to display the character of Jesus. Our involvement in the lives of other people will increasingly carry the signs of God working through us. But it doesn't happen overnight. A wheat farmer 
will not expect his harvest of grain the day after he planted the seeds. A vineyard owner will not expect to enjoy the fruits of his work a week after he plants his vines. It takes time and you need patience. We all need patience. But even though you might not notice, growth quietly takes place nonetheless. And eventually there will be a harvest. So what does it take to have a good, honest heart? I think the best way we can understand that is to learn from the negative examples that Jesus gives in this very same parable. A good, honest heart is not hard. Our hearts become that little bit harder every time we resist what God says to us. They become harder when we say no to his promptings. When we shut out the convicting voice of the Spirit, when we willfully set ourselves to disobey what is clearly written, eventually our ears become deaf and the message just washes over us. And every time you say no to God, it makes it more difficult to say yes the next time he speaks. And a good, honest heart is not shallow or superficial. Again, Psalm 1 talks about this person who meditates day and night on God's word. This person takes time, he turns the word over and over in his mind. And a good, honest heart takes time to look closely and think deeply about what God is saying. And he thinks about how does this apply to my life in terms of how I think, in terms of how I act, in terms of how I speak. And a good honest heart is one that has learned how to deal with distractions. If a person who has worked out what really matters in life, one who knows their priorities and has got rid of the clutter, even the legitimate real concerns and issues of life are subordinated to the importance of allowing God's word to go deep and to be fruitful. When you've cultivated a good honest heart, you hold on tightly to what you've heard and you never tire of coming back for more. You allow it to become part of you. You allow it to shape you from the inside out. With time, fruit will be evidence. The sowing of the same seed produced four different results. There was no difference in the seed. The only difference lay in the nature and quality of the soil. Jesus told this parable to help us understand there are going to be people in response to the gospel whose response is one of the following. Immediate rejection because their hearts are hard. There's going to be those who respond with a short-lived acceptance but they're going to fall away under temptations and trials as soon as that happens to them. And there are some whose acceptance is going to be more prolonged but they're eventually going to fall away because they're consumed with the pleasures and worries and riches of this life. Here's a key point. None of those three people groups, if you like, those types of people, will enjoy salvation through Christ. But there are those that Jesus says are the good soil. They're good because they persevere and they endure. They're the ones that are saved and they're the ones that produce the fruit in their lives. In other words, it is that same gospel that produces different results. The difference lies only in the condition of the heart of the listener. So, 
the key question for you today to ask yourself every day is what kind of listener am I today? Is the condition of your heart hard or superficial or worldly or is it noble and good? And I think you need to be sure that you know. You join with me as I pray. Lord, we are ever grateful for this wondrous message. We now know why it is that people don't respond. And for those who are here who have not responded to the gospel in a saving way, I pray, Father, that either their hardness, the shallowness or the worldliness of their hearts be made clear to them. And help us, Lord, to be able to observe those around us, those whom we love, and to make a right assessment of their spiritual heart condition so that we aren't under any illusions and don't perpetuate any deception. Help us, Lord, to present the gospel in its fullness, even as scripture clearly commands us to do. On the one hand, it's all about sin, and on the other hand, the wonder of forgiveness. Use us, I pray, as we employ the word to plough the hearts of sinners for a saving reception of the gospel. That indeed would be our highest and most privileged calling. May we give our lives to that end for Jesus' sake. Amen. I believe we're going to sing a song.